0: Hi, guys. Tom here. Before we get into today's episode, I want to start off with an announcement. I'm very pleased to say that American Biography is among a group of far more distinguished podcasts who have recently formed the Agora Podcast Network. I'm very excited for the opportunity to work alongside and collaborate with some incredible podcasters, such as Royfield Brown, Zach Twomley, David Crowther. Stephen Guerra, and Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. Please make sure you check out agorapodcastnetwork.com for more information, and follow Agora on Facebook and Twitter at Agora Podcasts. We've got some great things planned for the future, so be sure not to miss it. All right, so without further ado, on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to American Biography. This is the life of John Marshall, episode 14, A Party Animal. Last episode was kind of heavy, and with all the child mortality and constitutional law and treaty obligations and whatnot, I'm happy to shift the focus a little bit to politics. And to do that, just like last time, we'll have to go back to 1788, 1788 and the conclusion of the Virginia Convention, when Marshall returned to life as a private citizen. In his autobiographical sketch, Marshall says that, with the foundations of good government secured by the passage of the Constitution, and because his growing practice required his attention, he retired from public life. But in his sketch, he includes an almost offhanded observation along the lines of, Enrico County is so anti-federal right now, I'm not electable. Now, I don't agree that he was unelectable, because as we saw in the elections for the Virginia Ratifying Convention, the electorate weren't exactly issue based voters, but I'll take him at his word. His observations of the growing anti federal nature of Richmond, however, is a good jumping off point for today, because what he's in fact witnessing is the birth of the first party system which would crystallize throughout the 1790s as a result of the Hamiltonian economic program and the French Revolution, both of which we'll talk about today. Now, the popular image of the Founding Fathers is often one of forbearance, cooperation, and sagacity, and through the obscuring mists of time, those halcyon days can, on the surface, appear to have been a golden age of reason and unity. However, if one's eyes linger a little longer, one will notice that this is not true. So far in this podcast, in just covering the Revolutionary War, the years under the Articles of Confederation, and the adoption of the Constitution, we've seen incompetence, jealousy, rivalries, and threats of violence in at least equal proportion to moments of courage, devotion, pragmatism, and sacrifice. The bottom line is when we look at the past, we are looking at a world every bit as complicated as our own. Recognizing the human frailty which we share with the giants of the past isn't revisionism and isn't explored just for the sake of knocking people off pedestals, but is done in the hopes of engaging with these historical actors in human terms to find the understanding that we are tied to them over the span of years by a common mortal thread. I wanted to give that little prologue, because if you're not familiar with the next decade or so of American history, and hold that golden age view of the early American republic, you might be in for a bit of a shock. And since some iconic Americans will come out of these years looking pretty grimy, I just wanted to prepare you for that. Because while you may have noticed that politics in the United States during the 1780s had its fault lines, and was increasingly becoming more fraught, the 1790s would witness their full putrescence. Alright, so let's wade into it. In April of 1789, George Washington was sworn in as the first President of the United States. Among the many unanswered questions floating around about how the new federal government would operate, one in particular was about the relationship between the new federal government and the state governments in this uniquely American form of federalism. Opinion, of course, was split. For clarity, I'm going to now begin calling those in favor of a robust and ascendant national government federalists, and I'm going to refer to those who favored much more limited national government and stronger states as Republicans. Two podcaster footnotes here. First, It's technically a little early for these formal names, but the lines are sketched out pretty quickly after the adoption of the Constitution, so employing them at this point in the narrative for the sake of clarity is worth it. Second, there are several names which will be applicable for the different factions. Federalists and Hamiltonians will more or less be used interchangeably, as will Republicans and Jeffersonians. I've chosen to use the more concise term Republican here instead of the historiographical convenience of Democratic Republicans because the former is Jefferson's own term for his faction. But do not be confused. These Jeffersonian Republicans are in no way related to the modern GOP, which can trace its lineage back to the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln formed in the 1850s. In an effort to promote national unity and cooperation, and not knowing how serious the gulf between the parties would become, Washington chose to put the leading men of these nascent factions into prominent posts within his cabinet. The Treasury Department would be headed by the Federalist, Alexander Hamilton, while the Republican leader, Thomas Jefferson, would take the top post in the State Department. In 1790, Early cooperation between these two men, soon to be arch enemies, bore fruit as they hashed out a bargain by which Hamilton would achieve his goal of the federal government assuming all remaining Revolutionary War state debts in exchange for moving the national capital, then located in New York City, to a southern location on the Potomac River. The result was the Residency Act and the Assumption Act, both passed in the summer of 1790. However, Jefferson came to rue the agreement as Hamilton rolled out the other parts of his economic program, as he made clear in this excerpt from a letter Jefferson wrote to Washington in 1792. I was duped by the Secretary of the Treasury, and made a tool for forwarding his schemes, not then sufficiently understood by me. And of all the errors of my political life, this has occasioned me the deepest regret. Without getting bogged down a minute explanation of Hamilton's plan, which would be technical and strain my understanding of economics, let's stick to the broad strokes of the program. The goal was to establish some financial order in the United States. The first step had by necessity been the assumption of the state's lingering revolutionary debts, but this had just been the first prong. The other prongs of the plan used the maintenance of the now national debt in order to establish the young nation's domestic and international credit and to resolve the problem of on-backed fiat currency still floating around that had been issued by the states during the war, as well as establish a sound national currency. The crux of the plan depended on the incorporation of a national bank, which Hamilton proposed in the winter of 1790, and Congress approved early in 1791. Washington hesitated at signing the bank bill and asked for written opinions from his cabinet ministers. The best written and most historically important of these responses were, unsurprisingly, penned by Hamilton and Jefferson, and they distill rather nicely the underlying constitutional philosophies of the burgeoning parties each man represented. Since these are seminal arguments that will drive the political discourse through the Civil War, and it could be argued beyond, I am going to make a digression and briefly examine these arguments. Now, Jefferson favored a strict construction of the Constitution, and advised Washington that the bank did not pass constitutional muster, as the creation of a bank was not expressly granted to the federal government in that document. He grounds his objections in the Twelfth Amendment, writing, I consider the foundation of the Constitution as laid on this ground, that all powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved for the states or to the people. To take a single step beyond the boundaries thus specially drawn around the powers of Congress is to take possession of a boundless field of power, no longer susceptible to any definition. And Jefferson urged Washington to veto the bill, concluding, The negative of the President is the shield provided by the Constitution to protect against the invasions of the legislature. The present is the case of a right remaining exclusively with the states, and consequently one of those intended by the Constitution to be placed under its protection. Hamilton's opinion was a detailed 15,000-word masterpiece. His argument has come to be referred to as loose construction. He argued that not all powers need to be enumerated within the text of the Constitution in order to be constitutional logically speaking some unspecified means must inherently be constitutional in order for the federal government to carry out those powers that were expressly granted it for the bank his reasoning was as follows article 1 section 8 clause 3 of the constitution grants congress the power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states clause 5 of the same section also prohibits states from coining their own currency Therefore, as Hamilton writes, the institution of a bank has also a natural relation to the regulation of trade between the states, in so far as it is conducive to the creation of a convenient medium of exchange between them and to the keeping up of full circulation by preventing frequent displacement of the metals in reciprocal remittances. Money is the very hinge on which commerce turns. So with that, he's established that the ends of the bank are within the scope of the federal government's authority. But the Constitution still doesn't say that the government could create a bank. So how does he bridge that gap? The answer, he says, is again to be found in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, but this time in Clause 18, which states, The Congress shall have power to make all laws, which shall be necessary and proper, for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all the other powers vested by this constitution in the government of the united states or in any department or officer thereof so to put a great big bow on it in his opinion to washington hamilton continues Inherent in the very definition of government and essential to every step of progress to be made by that of the United States, namely, that every power vested in a government is in its nature sovereign, and includes, by force of the term, a right to employ all the means requisite and fairly applicable to the attainment of the ends of such power, and which are not precluded by restrictions and exceptions specified in the Constitution, or, not immoral, or not contrary to the essential ends of political society. Washington was persuaded by Hamilton's argument and signed the bill creating the first bank of the United States. Nearly 30 years later, John Marshall would deliver the final word in this dispute and lean very heavily on Hamilton's logic in doing so. But that is a story for another time. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The rift the bank created in the cabinet would never be repaired and would soon spill out and contaminate state and local politics as well. So now was a good time to transition to Marshall in Richmond in 1788. After leaving the state legislature at the conclusion of the Virginia Convention, Marshall found himself being encouraged to run for the House of Representatives. Marshall declined, however, and Federalist Samuel Griffin was elected in his stead. Griffin seemed cognizant of the fact that he'd been the second choice and was thankful for the opportunity. So, when he arrived in New York City for the opening of the first Congress, he sought out President Washington and mentioned to him that Marshall would be a great U.S. attorney for Virginia. Washington, who knew Marshall personally and professionally, assumed that this had been done with Marshall's consent and submitted his name for senatorial approval, which Marshall received. But Marshall didn't know anything about this and needless to say he was quite taken aback when he received Washington's letter congratulating him on his commission. So, for the first of what would be many times over the course of the next eight years, Marshall sat down and wrote to Washington to decline a federal post or appointment proffered by his old hero. Marshall's annual income at this time was among the elite for lawyers of the day, and as much as he was gratified by the appointment and as much as he'd like to help the administration, he wrote, As the federal and state courts being at the same time in different places, an attendance on the one becomes incompatible with the duties of an attorney in the other. Amidst the battle over the Bank of the United States in June 1792, Jefferson wrote to Madison that he had intelligence indicating that Hamilton, has expressed the strongest desire that Marshall should come into Congress from Richmond, declaring there is no man in Virginia whom he wishes so much to see there, and I am told that Marshall has expressed half a mind to come. Hence, I conclude that Hamilton has played him well with flattery and solicitation, and I think nothing better could be done than to make him a judge by this Jefferson likely meant by this Jefferson likely meant to remove Marshall as a political combatant by parking him on a state bench. But I wonder, in later years, when Chief Justice Marshall was the source of one of Jefferson's migraines, if he recalled the irony of these words while massaging his temples in the White House. As the deterioration of the national political discourse was accelerated by international tensions stirred up by the French Revolutionary Wars, Republicans backed France to the hilt while the Federalist revulsion over the anarchy of the Revolution, particularly after the death of King Louis XVI and the initiation of the Terror, led them to take a de facto pro-British stance. In response to the French declaration of war upon the monarchies of Europe, Washington, in May of 1793, issued his famous proclamation, declaring that neither the United States government nor its citizenry, under the penalty of law, should aid either France or Britain. It was only a short time later that the brash French minister, Citizen Genet, arrived in the United States and, in defiance of the President, began trying to recruit Americans to join the French war effort. Marshall later wrote of Genet's attempts to skirt the proclamation We were all strongly attached to France. Scarcely any man more strongly than myself. I sincerely believed human liberty to depend in a great measure on the success of the French Revolution. My partiality to France, however, did not so entirely pervert my understanding as to render me insensible to the danger of permitting a foreign minister to mingle himself in the management of our affairs, and to intrude himself between our government and people. At this time many public meetings were held in various parts of the country, by one party or the other, both for and against neutrality. That August, in Richmond, Marshall and old John Wythe organized a public rally in support of the President. As was typical at these events, there were speakers, and resolutions were drawn up and approved by those assembled, and everyone went home well-pleased after some cathartic public demonstrating. James Madison and James Monroe, who'd fallen in with the Republicans... Couldn't let this challenge go unanswered in their own backyard, and held counter pro French demonstrations in other parts of Virginia to prove whose turf this really was. This was followed by Monroe and Marshall getting into the eighteenth century equivalent of a flame war, and the two began going back and forth at each other in the local papers under pseudonyms, such as Agricola and Aristides or Gracchus, respectively. So Monroe was like hey, the organizers of the Richmond meeting were anti-French monarchists who want to establish an American monarchy. And Marshall was all like, as if, I don't know anyone that's an enemy of France or a friend of monarchy in Richmond. But in truth, the success of the Richmond meeting hipped the Republican leadership to the fact that Marshall had developed into an extremely effective pair of boots on the ground in support of the administration's policy and politics were degenerating to the level that Marshall's best friend, James Monroe, was lambasting his character in the press, and James Madison, who'd worked with Marshall on ratification and who liked and respected him personally not that long before, was willing to see him as corrupt and actively spread gossip about him behind his back. We can see an example of this in a September 1793 letter, Madison wrote to Jefferson, claiming that Marshall was in the pocket of Hamilton's bank because he'd heard a rumor that the bank had subsidized John's purchase of the Fairfax estate. But Madison clearly had no idea what he was talking about, because, as we discussed last episode, the Marshall brothers had only signed a PNS with Denny Fairfax in 1793 and was slog it out with the state of Virginia for another three years before a clean title could be produced and the deal consummated. While Marshall wasn't aware of the accusations leveled in Madison's private correspondence, he had a fairly certain idea who was behind the public attacks on him, and as he wrote years later, The resentments of the great political party which led Virginia had been directed toward me for some time, but the Richmond rally brought it out into active operation. I was attacked with great virulence in the papers, and was so far honored in Virginia as to be associated with Alexander Hamilton, at least so far as to be termed his instrument. To Justice Story, at least, he justified his actions, writing, My constant effort was to show that the conduct of our government, respecting its foreign relations, were such as a just self-respect and a regard for our rights as a sovereign nation rendered indispensable, and that our independence was brought into real danger by the overgrown and inordinate influence of France. His efforts to support the administration wouldn't be solely intellectual and confined to paper, however. When the British began seizing American ships bound for France and impressing American seamen in mid-1793, the governor of Virginia, Federalist Harry Lee, attuned to the potential danger with which the moment was pregnant, thought it best to prepare his state for the eventuality of war. As part of his readiness campaign, in 1793 Marshall was made a brigadier general of the Virginia line, due to his previous military experience, and given a command. In this capacity, the following summer, he would be ordered to seize a ship called the Unicorn, outfitting to be a French privateer near Smithfield on the James River. Marshall led a cavalry force and seized the cannon with ball, grape shot, powder, and the Unicorn itself without firing a shot. 1794 also saw Washington's great effort to stave off war with Great Britain over their repeated violations of American rights on the high seas and so sent John Jay to try and reach a peaceable settlement. Jay returned with an embarrassing treaty that did little more for the United States than preserve the peace. Jay was so thoroughly condemned for his efforts that he joked that he could travel at night from Boston to Philadelphia solely by the light of his burning effigies. Republican outcry against the treaty was so virulent That ratification was seriously endangered, and Washington was forced to throw his great prestige behind it, which was seriously dented in the process, just to secure its passage. By 1795, Opportunity wasn't just knocking, but was throwing itself at Marshall. Washington offered him the attorney generalship, but Marshall declined. A short time later, Secretary of State Edmund Randolph resigned his post over indiscreet correspondence with French officials, and Washington's instinct was to offer the post to John. But as he admitted in a letter, Mr. Marshall of Virginia has declined the office of Attorney General, and I am pretty certain would accept no other. Back in Virginia the same year, Marshall was elected to the Virginia Assembly without standing for office. Beveridge shares a rather amusing account, which he himself calls improbable, but includes in his biography because he says he can find no evidence to refute it, so I will share it as well. The polls were open and the voting in progress. Marshall was among the first to arrive, and he announced his choice. Upon his appearance, a gentleman demanded that a poll be open for Mr. Marshall. Marshall, of course, indignantly refused. He had promised to support a friend, he avowed, and now to become a candidate was against his wishes and feelings of honor, but Marshall promised that he would stand for the legislature the following year. Thereupon Marshall left the polls and went to the courthouse to make an argument in a case then pending. No sooner had he departed than a poll was opened for him in spite of his objections. He was elected, and then, in the evening, was told of the undesired honor with which the freeholders of Richmond had crowned him. Meanwhile, the Jay Treaty produced an acrimony in Virginia that just wouldn't quit. Even after its ratification by the United States Senate and being signed into law by the President, Republicans still schemed to use the House of Representatives to somehow prevent its implementation. Marshall would become embroiled in these arguments over the treaty's constitutionality while in the Virginia House of Delegates, and his efforts there, along with his participation in more pro-treaty public meetings, burnished his reputations among Federalists nationally. When James Monroe was recalled as Minister to France in July of 1796 for being too sympathetic to the French, Washington offered Marshall this critical diplomatic post. Yet this honor too, like all the previous ones, Marshall refused. As summer gave way to fall, and Washington prepared for his long-awaited retirement, the Virginia House of Delegates took up a resolution thanking the President for his service, which should have taken a total of about ten seconds to approve. Instead, it turned into a brutal partisan fight because the Virginia Republicans objected to the use of the word wisdom within its text. Marshall was again a key player in that body supporting the President, and he later wrote of this incident. In the debate, the whole course of the administration was reviewed, and the whole talent of each party brought into action. Will it be believed that the word was retained by a very small majority? Everything I've talked about thus far this episode has been to do with the politics of the era and how Marshalls dealt with them. However, before wrapping up today, I think it's necessary to juxtapose all this partisan angst with John's social life and standing in Richmond. Around the time of Washington's retirement, Jefferson writes bitterly of Marshall. He has been hitherto able to do more mischief acting under the mask of republicanism than he will be able to after throwing it plainly off. His lax, lounging manners have made him popular with the bulk of the people of Richmond and a profound hypocrisy with many thinking men of our country. This view of Marshall might be easily dismissed as Jefferson's bias. He was famous, after all, for making politics personal and demonizing his opponents as heretics and apostates. However, a French exile, traveling through Virginia at the time, and please pardon my French, the Duke de la Rochefoucauld Leoncourt recorded these more objective observations of John. Marshall, conspicuously eminent as a professor of the law, is beyond all doubt one of those who rank highest in the public opinion at Richmond. He is what is termed a Federalist, and perhaps at times somewhat warm in support of his opinions, but never exceeding the bounds of propriety. He may be considered as a distinguished character in the United States. His political enemies allow him to possess great talents, but accuse him of ambition. I know not whether the charge be well or ill-grounded, or whether that ambition might ever be able to impel him to a dereliction of his principles, a conduct of which I am inclined to disbelieve the possibility on his part. He has already refused several employments under the general government, preferring the income derived from his professional labors, which is more than sufficient for his moderate system of economy, together with a life of tranquil ease in midst of his family and in his native town. Even by his friends he is taxed with some little propensity to indolence, but even if this reproach were well founded, he nevertheless displays great superiority in his profession when he applies his mind to business. Another reason besides politics for Jefferson's harsh appraisal of John might stem from the basic difference between his and Marshall's personalities, which were light years apart. One dinner companion complained about Jefferson's single-mindedness, saying in conversation he was a vigorous stickler for revolutions and for the downfall of an aristocracy. In fact, like his friend T. Payne, he cannot live but in a revolution, and all events in Europe are only considered by him in the relation they bear to the probability of a revolution to be produced by them. So despite his reserved philosophical veneer, Jefferson was clearly a man who was always on, who felt intensely, and whose passions could consume him. While Marshall, on the other hand, was the kind of guy who held rock-solid convictions, but was equally able to just punch his card when the whistle blew at the end of the day and declare it Miller time. It feels to me that Jefferson was conscious that he was pursuing his life's work, while Marshall enjoyed his work, but also joyously pursued life. I won't pursue this line of thought too far for now, because I plan on talking more about this complicated relationship in the future. But I want to underscore Marshall's greater sense of joy de vivre by jumping back one last time to 1788, before we finish. It was then that Marshall became a founding member of a men's social club, which a man such as Jefferson would scorn as frivolous. It was the Coits Club, so-called because that game was a favored pastime of club members. Membership was capped at 30, plus an open invitation for the governor and the city's two ministers. Every Saturday between May and September, the club met on a farm just outside of Richmond, where a long table under a canopy was set up, where they feasted on barbecued pig. Smith shares one contemporary's account. Mr. Marshall sat at the head of the table, A better dinner of the substantials of life was rarely seen. The only dessert they indulged in was a steaming juicy mutton chop, cooked to a turn, and a deviled ham, highly seasoned with mustard, cayenne pepper, and a slight flavoring of Worcester sauce, and there were passed along the board. The meal was served at 12.30 sharp, and the talk of politics was strictly forbidden, and all day long the men drank from bowls of a potent punch of Marshall's concocting, said to contain brandy, rum, and Madeira. Once they'd eaten their fill, they retreated to the quoit pits. Now, if you're familiar with the modern American backyard barbecue game of horseshoes, then you pretty much have a good idea of what quoits looked like. Rules varied a bit, but essentially participants would throw an enclosed metal ring at a post and keep score by whose rings were closest to that post. The same contemporary we just heard from also said that Marshall had a set of the largest, most uncouth rough iron quoits, which very few in the club could throw with any accuracy from hub to hub, but he threw them with great ease and frequently wrung the peg. We have seen Mr. Marshall, in later times, when he was Chief Justice of the United States, on his hands and knees, with a straw and a penknife, the blade of the knife stuck through the straw, holding it between the edge of the quoit and the hub, and when it was a very doubtful question as to which quoit was closest, pinching or biting off the ends of the straw until it would fit a hair. Now I just love how this quote humanizes Marshall. To imagine that great marble Chief Justice, the father of the American Judiciary, Throwing himself down in the dirt to argue about who the point should go to is so amazingly demystifying. I know I've seen my family do this at summer picnics, and done similar things myself a thousand times. I'm sure many of us have. And again, this is why I love looking at history through the lives of its participants. People have always been people, and across time the games may have changed. quoits, horseshoes, cornhole but the human experience hasn't, and I feel that shrinks the distance between us and our ancestors significantly. It makes me appreciate the lives they've lived all the more. Okay, that's all for today, but be sure to join me next time when George Washington finally wears Marshall down. Until then, remember you can find me on Facebook and on Twitter at American underscore bio. And if you'd like to help the show out, you can do so by visiting americanbiography.webs.com and donating through the PayPal button. You can also help by getting the word out and leaving me a nice review on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can send them to me at americanbiographypodcast at gmail.com. And finally, this month, the Agora Podcast Network is spotlighting the When Diplomacy Fails podcast, which is in the midst of a terrific series, Britain Goes to War, that is tracing Great Britain's footsteps through the end of the Victorian era through World War One. So make sure you check it out. Alright, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.